What a good, good day this is. So I invite you to take a copy of God's Word and the Bible that you brought with you, or if you don't have one with you, there's a, a blue one in the pew seat in front of you. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 to 25. So the very end of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 18 to 25. I'll give you a second to turn there. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, as I've said a couple times, we are wrapping up our journey through the book of Hebrews. Just to remind you, we've been in this book now for almost nine months. That's 29 Sundays we have spent looking at and walking through this book of seeing Christ in this letter. So before we get into the, the meat of the sermon, just one question I want to pose to you is, how has this journey changed you? Some of you I know are just joining us, but many of you have been here for this whole nine months. And in that time, how has this book changed you? What have you seen of Jesus in this letter that has caused you to think or desire or believe or live or speak differently? What have you learned about this Savior? How is he better than you thought he was? How has your love for Jesus grown? How have you been encouraged to hold fast to your hope in him and to keep trusting him? In short, how has God used this book in your life? And I ask that because I hope you see each book that we walk through here as an opportunity to see more of our great God and Savior. That these are not just filler times, but as we begin each new book, I hope there's a sense of expectancy and excitement of what is God going to do in me as I look at this book? Through this set of sermons, whether it's a three-week series or a year-long series, what is God going to do through his word? So at the end of these series, we don't just want to look back and have new information. We want, to, we want to be changed. We want to be different. And so I'm encouraging you to spend some time thinking and asking, God, what have you done in my life since January? Through this book, 
in your word? What, what, what have you done in my life? And then don't just ponder it. Talk about it. Share it with someone else. Kind of exchange. Say, hey, what has God done in your life as we've walked through Hebrews? What have you learned about Jesus? This is a great thing to talk about over lunch or coffee. It's a great excuse to get together. Okay, so that's kind of a preface. Like I said, today we're wrapping this book up. So if this is your first Sunday, you're catching the tail end of a nine-month journey. So we're glad you're here. Sorry if it's, you're like, wait a minute, I just got it. So like I said, we're wrapping it up. And as we come to the very end of the letter, what we come to is a benediction. Now, my guess is many of your Bibles might even have that word as kind of a header. It says, benediction. So what is a benediction? We, we do them at the end of our services here. I come up and I say something, or you see it printed in the bulletin there. The last thing in the order of service is benediction. But what exactly is a benediction? Well, benediction, most simply, it comes from two Latin words that mean good and to speak. So fundamentally, it's speaking a good word, or it's pronouncing God's blessing over his people. We're asking God to do something. So it's like a prayer, but instead of talking to God, we're talking to his people, telling them what we're asking God to do for them. So where did these benedictions come from? Well, we see the practice start in the Old Testament. When God instructs Aaron to bless the gathered people of Israel, he, he has his priests and he says, when you gather these people, I want you to bless the people with these words. I want you to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. And you can tell this is involuntary. He, the priests would lift their hands. So it's, that's just how a benediction is administered. It's a way of saying, these things that I'm asking God, I want them to be upon you. So that's the Old Testament. We see it throughout. Now get to the New Testament. We see Jesus himself offering a benediction as he ascends back to heaven. Did you know that? That as he's going back to the Father, Luke 24, 50 says, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So the final thing that our Savior did while he was here on earth with us is he gives us a benediction. He lifts his hands and blesses his people before he sends them out on mission. And then all throughout your New Testament, you'll see authors pick up this idea in their letters. Paul uses several. These are ones you hear me use frequently. Words like, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Or may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. These are benedictions. These are what the authors are saying. This is what I want for you. This is what I'm asking God to do. And throughout most of church history, it's been a common practice to end church services with a benediction. It's pronouncing God's blessing on his gathered people as we prepare to scatter back into the world, to live on mission, to keep running our race of faith. In fact, one of the best descriptions I've heard, if you want it really simple terms, what is a benediction? It's a blessing for the road. It's a blessing for the road. And as we come to the end of Hebrews, a book that has been all about our journey to Zion, about this 
journey somewhere, this pathway, this movement somewhere, telling us that we should fix our eyes on Jesus and hold fast to our hope and keep running the race all the way home, what better way to end than with a blessing for the road? Because that's what we need, a benediction, a prayer for our pilgrimage. Now, the actual benediction is only in verses 20 and 21. And that's where we're going to spend most of the time this morning. But here's your outline for the passage. In verses 18 and 19, the author says, pray for me. Okay, pray for me. Then in verses 20 and 21, he says, here's my prayer for you. So pray for me, here's my prayer for you. And then 22 to 25, his parting words. Pray for me, my prayer for you, and some parting words. So first, let's look at the author's request in verses 18 and 19. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, most scholars think that the author, whoever he is, is probably just using the literary we here, meaning We don't know if there's actually a second or third or group of people writing this with him. Could be, but we've had no indication of that throughout. Either way, it's not fundamentally that important. What is important here is this leader's humility. Here's a guy who's been preaching to them all throughout this letter. He clearly knows his Bible as he's been quoting from and explaining all kinds of Old Testament passages. I mean, this guy knows the word. And he's got amazing theology. He's a gifted communicator. He's been able to cover so much in these 13 chapters. And yet he keeps somehow tying it back together. He's got some authority. Because at times he's been speaking very sobering warnings to them. And he he clearly has relationships with these people. Notice in verse 19 it says he wants to be restored to them. Meaning he's been with them in the past. They know him. So this guy is most likely one of their current or former leaders who's right now separated from them, but he spent time with them and ministered among them. So he's got all this knowledge and ability and authority and relationship. He's got all these gifts and skills for ministry, and yet what does this leader ask the people to do? He says, pray for me. Pray for me. He desperately wants their prayers. He's confident that he has a clear conscience. In other words, he's, he's confident that he's carrying out this ministry that God has given him the way God would have him. And yet he knows that without God's help, it's impossible. So he says, pray for me. Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians. Listen to Paul's words. Speaking to that church, he says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Then he goes on, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. Then later in that same letter, he says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So here our author is saying the same thing. He's saying, I have a clear conscience 
Because I'm committed to speaking the truth of God's word in simplicity and sincerity. It's like I'm not trying to tamper with it, do anything fancy or pull a fast one. I'm just going to tell you what it says and I'm going to say it simply so that you can understand it. And I'm going to say it passionately so that you know I believe this. And he knows that his ministry is impossible apart from the prayers of the people. For his ministry to be effective and for him to be able to keep following Jesus all the way home, he needs the people to pray for him. And pastors of all time and all places know this to be true. After pastoring one of the largest churches in England for decades, a group of people invited Charles Spurgeon to a conference. And they, the guy hosting it asked him a question. He said, he said Mr. Spurgeon, like, I've been following your ministry for years and, and we've got a lot of theories as to what's made you so successful in ministry. But, but I'm curious to hear from you which one it is. So tell us. What has made your ministry so successful? And without a moment's hesitation, Spurgeon looked at him and said, my people pray for me. That was it. Why has God built this church, he says, and why, has, why have we seen so many people come to Christ and have their lives changed and be just transformed by his grace? Is it because of this, well, we've got this great strategy or, oh, man, you should see the way we do small groups or our Sunday school classes or, well, we started a children's ministry. No. The reason he says that we've seen God do so much is the people pray for me. And this is true for all pastors of all time and all places. So as one of your elders, let me tell you, I need your prayers. That's not lip service. That's reality. I need your prayers. All your elders need your prayers. And let me tell you, when I get texts or emails from some of you telling me that you're praying for me and what you're praying for me, I can't tell you the impact that has. And that's just on the impact that I feel. There's also another couple in their 80s that doesn't go to this church, but they pray for my sermon and for our service every single week. And then he texts me to tell me what he prayed. I went back just this morning and I'll just read you the most recent because this, I, love, I love these guys. So he says, We are lifting you up in prayer as God's messenger on this Lord's day, my servant. May the Lord speak clearly through you and may everyone within the sound of your voice be truly impacted. And may hearts be radically altered for his namesake. And I get these texts. I, I scrolled through because I was curious. Every single Saturday. And I'm not especially close with these people. But they, for whatever reason, have, that's a ministry they've latched onto and said, there's me and a handful of other pastors that they do that for. And they pray every single week. What a powerful ministry. And the best part is, anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. If you're homebound, you can do that. If you don't know tons of theology, you can do that. If you're not good with people, you can do that. And as I've thought many times that any fruit that comes through our services, one day we will find out had far more to do with their praying than with my preaching. And I believe that. And so I'm saying, pray for me. Pray for us. 
Your leaders need it. But notice that the author doesn't just want their prayers. He also wants their presence. Verse 19 says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this, to urge you to pray. Why? In order that I may be restored to you the sooner. He says, please pray because I want to be with you. He misses his church family. He longs to be with them again because he loves them. He doesn't just want to write them letters. He wants to be together. John, the apostle, says the same thing in 2 John 12. He says, though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And man, if there's ever a time in history that we can relate to that, can't we do that today? I mean, wouldn't you much rather be face to face than talking to one another over Zoom? I mean, if if there's ever a time you should amen, I mean, that should be it, right? Like, isn't it better to, to shake a hand or give a hug than stare at a screen? Oh, wouldn't you rather share exciting news, talk about the tough times you're walking through, or just rejoice in the Lord together in person rather than over email or text or even a phone call? So two quick takeaways for us from these first two verses. Pray for your leaders and prioritize being present with your church family. Okay? Now, after he asks the people to pray for him, the author says, let me share how I'm praying for you as they follow Jesus on the path of faith. Look at verse 20. He says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now in many ways, this is kind of the real ending of the letter. A lot of commentators say that verses 22 and 25, they're, they're more like a P.S. So this is his big finish, and then he tacks on some, some parting words, some, some greetings and some last thoughts. But if this is his, his big exit, if this is what he wants ringing in their ears, what does the author want to leave them with? What does he include in his blessing for the road? I'm going to break this down, and I want to break it down into three parts here. I want to look at, he starts with, who, who it is that we're asking for this blessing, what it is we're asking him to do, and then how he's going to do that. So who, what, how. So first, who is the source of this blessing? Who is the God that he's asking to do something? And the first thing you see is that he is the God of peace. Man, isn't that good to know? That in the midst of our chaotic world and our stress-filled lives, the God we belong to is a God of peace. So what kind of peace are we talking about here? Well, I think there's a few different kinds. First and foremost, what we're talking about is the peace that he's made with us despite our sinful rebellion against him. Apart from Christ, we live our whole lives in opposition to God's rule. Instead of bowing down in allegiance to him as the rightful king, our hearts constantly conspire to overthrow him and take his throne. 
We want to live by our rules and for our purposes and our kingdoms. And so even though we've waged these puny little rebellions, we've waged these assaults on the throne, and we doing so against this great God, even though it's been like trying to take on a military superpower with nothing but little BB guns, God didn't just wipe us out the way he could have. I mean, this was not like a a hard battle. He's like, oh, I don't know who's going to win. Like, he could have crushed us. But instead of crushing us, he crushed his son in our place. And he did it with the full nuclear force of his wrath. And when Jesus died... He paid the just penalty for our treason. He took all of our rebellion and justice, we sang earlier, justice has been satisfied because it had to be atoned for. We couldn't have peace without the crimes being dealt with. We weren't, God wasn't just going to sweep it under the rug and say, all those times that you raised up against me and, and tried to take my place, ah, never mind, I'll just let it go. No, that's not justice. The crimes had to be paid for. And so he said, I'm going to give you my son. And when Jesus took our sins, we have no comprehension. Like I said, the best, the best illustration is that he felt the full nuclear force of God's wrath. And he did it in our place. And when he did, he made peace by his cross. So if we are in Christ, We are no longer at war with God. Think about that. Think about everything going on in your life. You think you got problems? Your biggest problem, my friend, if you are not a Christian, is that you are at war with God. I don't care if you figure out your job situation. I don't care if your family's looking great. I don't care if your car broke down. There's nothing else going on in your life that is bigger than the fact that you are at war with the God of the universe. You will not win. And you are picking a fight Not only that you can't win, but that it's unjust, that is wrong, that is ugly, that is wicked. But hear the good news of the gospel. That God, rather than bringing terms of saying, annihilation is coming, I'm going to destroy you. Instead, he brings tidings of peace and says, the war is over. I've made peace by giving you my son. And so if we are in Christ, we are no longer at war, but instead... Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first kind of peace we're talking about. But the God of peace also creates peace between his children. Not just between us and him, but between one another. He's made us both one in Christ. And that's why he said back in chapter 12, we are to strive for peace with everyone. Because God himself has made peace between us. We should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But we don't just have peace with God and peace with with each other. We can have peace within ourselves. We can have peace as we face the troubles and trials of life. Remember who this letter is written to. This group of Hebrews, this is a group of people who are facing pressures and persecutions. They were facing temptations and fears, things every day that threatened to cause them to say, like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Maybe this whole following Jesus thing is too hard. Maybe maybe that way is easier. I don't know if I can handle this. 
That was their daily experience. And as the author is leaving them with a blessing for the road, he reminds them that the God who's going to do this blessing is a God of peace. This God is able to give us a peace that passes all understanding. That doesn't mean your problems will go away. We need to hear that. Sometimes that verse, we kind of slap that on as though knowing that God gives us peace means my problems go away. It doesn't. But it does mean that as you walk through those problems, God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He will give you a peace. So that's the first thing we see about this God. The second thing we see about the God who blesses us on the journey home is that he is a resurrecting God. See there it says, he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now two reasons why that changes everything. One, because Jesus is alive, that means he has destroyed the one who has the power of death. Remember, this is chapter two. He has destroyed the one who has the power of death and he's delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, from the moment we're born until the moment we meet Jesus, we live with an ever-present, nagging fear of death. Now, we don't always say it, but it's lurking like a cloud over our shoulder. It's why we seek security. Why? Because if we're insecure, something might happen. It's why we look for comfort and protection. It's why we try to build up as much defense around our lives and ourselves as possible. Why? Because what if I die? So much of our life is lived in fear of death. And because Jesus is alive, he died and rose again, that means he's destroyed the one who has the power of death and has set free all those who trust in him from the fear of death. So now we no longer have to fear it if you were a Christian. Death is not a dead end, it's a doorway into the life God has given us. And we have a hope that death can't destroy. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own belong to God. And because Jesus has been brought from the dead, that also means that unlike every other priest in the Old Testament, he abides forever. Right? This was the message of chapters 7 and 8 and all through there, that he has an indestructible life. You can't take him down. You can't kick him out. You can't kill him. He died, but now he's alive. And so because he's alive, he always lives to make intercession for us. And that is why he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This is Hebrews. I hope you're just hearing. It's dripping. He's putting this all in his benediction. All throughout the book of Hebrews, we've seen Jesus. It talks about Jesus and he's usually, he's usually in a particular place. Where is Jesus? Seated at the right hand of the Father. But why is he seated there? Because he's finished his sacrificial work. He has made purification for sins. Unlike the other priests who had to keep standing, 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 standing because the work was never done, Jesus said it is finished and sat down. And the fact that God brought him from the dead is evidence that his sacrifice was accepted. The resurrection of Jesus is the receipt that God has accepted payment in full for your sins. It's the evidence. So that's why when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we can look and see him there 
who made an end to all my sin. And why can we see him there at the right hand of the Father? Because God brought him again from the dead. That's the hope we have. Third, notice what our author calls Jesus in verse 20. The great shepherd of the sheep. Oh, I love that title. So as we make this journey to Zion along the path of faith, there isn't any better news than that we have a great shepherd leading us and guiding us all the way home. Because Jesus is our great shepherd, friends, none can snatch us out of his hand. We face constant danger along the road home. We are weak and vulnerable sheep, but our shepherd is strong. When we fear our faith will fail, he will hold us fast. When it seems like the tempter might prevail, he will hold us fast. Because our great shepherd loves us so, he will hold us fast. Even as we walk through dark and scary times, to this we hold. Our shepherd will defend us. Through the darkest valley he will lead. Even the valley of the shadow of death. And we don't need to fear any evil for he is with us. And he promised in chapter 13 that he will never leave us or forsake us. In fact, the shepherd prepares a table for us along the way so that we can feast on and be strengthened by grace. And our great shepherd will lead us all the way home so that we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, we are pilgrims on our way to Zion, but we do not walk this path alone. Our shepherd is always with us, always leading, always protecting He never takes a break and he never takes his eye off of one of his sheep. He will feed you with the food your soul hungers for and he will lead you into the rest your heart needs. He is a good and great shepherd. And the fourth thing we see about who this God is, this God who's blessing us on the road home, is that he does so by the blood of of the eternal covenant. Here you've got several streams of Hebrews coming together to form one ocean of grace. We saw back in chapter 7, verse 22, it said that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. So God has bound himself to us as his people by a covenant, just like husband and wife bind themselves together in marriage by a covenant. God has bound us to him by a covenant. And this covenant it said, was better because it's unbreakable. It's eternal and everlasting. In other words, God will never stop being our God and we will never cease being his people. And if you remember from chapter eight, this better eternal covenant had better promises. Do you remember this? In the new covenant, God promised us three things at least. Inner transformation, intimate knowledge, and entire forgiveness. So no more cleaning up the act on the outside. To be a Christian is not an external religion where you just make some behavioral modifications to try to play the part. No, God says none of that. God promised to change us from the inside out to give us a new heart with his law written upon it and to put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways. He said, I'm not just gonna like give you some things to do. I'm gonna change you. That's why we started this saying, how has God changed you through his word? He promised he would do it. He said, I'm going to change you fundamentally. 
at your core. And he promised that we would each know him. Oh, this is amazing. That we're not second-handers. Like, we're not simply reliant upon the scraps of other people who do know God to tell us kind of what he's like. Say, oh, you, you have a relationship with God? Well, tell me what your relationship is like and I'll kind of live second-hand. God says, no, you will know me for yourself. In this new covenant, we have intimate, first-hand knowledge of the God who created us. And he says, well, you will experience entire forgiveness for your sins. All of our sins in Christ are perfectly and completely forgiven by God. And he said he will remember them no more. We have been washed clean from every stain. And this eternal covenant with all those amazing promises was purchased by the blood of Jesus. That's the blood of the eternal covenant. Because Jesus is the better priest who offers a better sacrifice with better blood in the better holy places. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, we have confidence, friends, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The God who blesses us as we journey home, just to kind of bring those together, is the God who has bound himself to us with an everlasting covenant. And that covenant is purchased by and sealed in the blood of the perfect Lamb of God. He's the God of peace. He's raised our Lord Jesus, and he's given, to, given him to us as our great shepherd. So that's who is blessing us on the road home. So what is it that the author asked that great God to do? That's who, he's saying, that's who I'm asking to do something, church. As you go on your way home, that's, that's who I'm going to. That's who's behind this. But what is it that he wants God to do? What is the actual blessing? Verse 21. That God might equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So this is the goal. This is what he wants to be the outcome of his letter, is that we would do God's will and live lives pleasing to him. That's what we were made and redeemed to do. And that is what Jesus, our perfect older brother, did. Hebrews 10.7 said that when Christ came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. John 8.29, Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus did the things that we're seeing here. And so what we're reading is that now he's saying, I'm asking God to make you more and more like Jesus. Jesus, who's come to do God's will, who always does that which is pleasing in his sight, God, the author's saying, God's doing that in you, friends. As you walk this pilgrim pathway, God's doing that. He's equipping us with everything good. Man, I feel... I want to preach a whole sermon on that. Everything good. Just ponder that. Mull that around a little bit. What does it mean that he equips you with everything good to do his will? That means anytime the thought starts to creep in and for a second of like, if only I had, you think, no. I have everything good. 
well, I bet it'd be easier if I had. No, because if it was good, you'd have it. He equips you with everything good that you may do his will. In other words, God is supplying and providing whatever you might need to trust and obey him. He is the one working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And that, the fact that he's the one working, friends, that's the beauty of the gospel. That God doesn't just tell us what to do, he actually enables and empowers us to do it. This isn't mission impossible. God gives us the ability to do everything he commands us to do. I, I want to say that again because sometimes I think we, we're tempted to think that's too hard. Like that's, but friends, God gives us the ability in Christ to do everything he commands us to do. No command in the Bible is impossible with him. So when he says, forgive one another, and you think, are you kidding me? Do you know how badly they hurt me? Do you know how, they're not even, like, what if they'll do? They'll probably do it again. They've hurt me over and over, and you want me to forgive them? That's impossible. He says, you can do that. When he says, be content with what you have, and you think, really? I mean, do you know how little I have? I mean, if I had as much as them, yeah, I'd probably be content. He says, no, be content with what you have. We can do that. When he calls us to hold fast our hope in Jesus and keep trusting him, even when we go through really, really painfully hard times, we can do that. How? Is it because we're so strong? Because we have so much willpower that we buckle down and we try harder and we pull our bootstraps up? Is that why? No. It's because as Paul says in Philippians 2.13, we keep trusting and obeying for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The good news of the gospel is that everything God demands from us, he works in us. That's amazing. This isn't moralistic religion. Every other religion in the world tells you do, 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 do. God says, I'm going to do it for you and in you. John Bunyan famously said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. That's the difference. The law demands hard things of us, but gives us nothing to help us do it. The gospel calls us for actually even more impossible things, but it gives us all we need for life and godliness. God equips us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He works. And how does he work? How does he do this? Verse 21, through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, all our forgiveness, all our freedom from sin comes through Jesus. Every benefit of the new covenant comes to us through Jesus. All that we need to live a life pleasing to God comes through Jesus. All that we need to obey God and do his will comes through Jesus. And all that we need to keep going in the race of faith and make it home to Zion comes through Jesus. 
It's all about him. And that's why it says, to him belongs the glory forever and ever. That's why we sang earlier, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And finally, we come to the last section. The author's parting words. Look at verse 22. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. So as he closes his letter, I hope you can just hear the family affection that he's speaking with. These are his brothers and his sisters that he's writing to. He loves them with a brotherly love, like we saw up in chapter 13, verse 1. He longs for them to hear and believe these truths that he shared with them. That's what he says. He refers to his letter as a word of exhortation. In other words, it's, it's this word that's meant to encourage them. It's meant to warn them, to renew their hope. It's a word that's been full of tenderness and passion and rich truth about Jesus and our eternal home and sober warnings about falling away along the journey. And this exhortation is the same thing he's called us to do throughout the letter. Chapter 3, verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 10.25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging, same word, exhorting one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, the kind of exhorting he wants us to do for one another is the same kind of exhorting we've been seeing him do for 29 weeks. What has that been? We should exhort each other by telling each other how great Jesus is telling each other how he's better than anything else and how any trial or tribulation encountered for his name is more than worth it. We should encourage each other to hold fast to your hope in him. Fix your eyes on him. Keep running the race of faith until you make it home to Zion. And as you walk this pilgrim pathway, his final words to us are a reminder that grace will be with us. Grace be with you all. His grace hath brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. So my fellow pilgrims, that's what we are. We're pilgrims. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and keep trusting him all the way home. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us take after C.S. Lewis, who we quoted early in this series when he said, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Friends, this journey ours together unto that great forever 
What song anew we'll sing round that happy throne? Come, faint of heart, we're almost home. We're almost home. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would use your word to build, to create, and to sustain hope in your people for our journey home. May we see Jesus more clearly because of this book. And may we hold even tighter to the hope we have in him. And God, would you by your grace help us to persevere and to help one another make it all the way home. Thank you for the truth that even today we are one day closer. We ask for your help to do these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.